You're listening to episode 132 of the Tennis Files podcast. Australian Open 2020 key takeaways with Peter Freeman. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis Files Podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mehrban Iranshad. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. My name is Mehrban Iranshad, a former Division I college tennis player. And on the show, I interview the world's top coaches, pros, and experts to help you improve your tennis game. And today I have on the show for you, Peter Freeman. Peter is a fantastic coach uh, from Georgia, and you can check out all of his fantastic material uh, and content at crunchtimecoaching.com and also on his YouTube channel with the same name. I believe he's he's gotten over 35,000 subscribers, and he uh, he creates a lot of great programs, a lot of fantastic instructional videos, and he's also a really cool person and somebody that... I've spoken to many times and talked shop uh, about tennis and how people can improve. So I always enjoy speaking with Pete, whether it's on the podcast or in private. And I've actually had Peter on two episodes uh, in addition to this one, on episode 70 and also 116. And uh, he also hosts um, the yearly tennis con events, which he does a great job on uh, as well. And so... Pete thought it would be really cool to speak with me while he was at the U.S. Open. And so we spoke during the later rounds of the tournament. I think it was maybe around the quarterfinals or so. But it was a bit different and intentionally so. Uh, Instead of making this uh, some sort of purely updates on the matches and who has progressed to what rounds, we made this more of a discussion about Pete's observations of the pros as far as the strategies they've used in matches and what he's observed, you know, the mannerisms and habits and and so forth of the players and other cool things that he found while at the tournament. And we also go into a comparison of uh, Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic and uh, what makes them great players strategically. So, of course, the podcast is always about helping you improve your game. So I really do think that you'll have some great takeaways from this conversation with Pete about what he's seen and uh, our thoughts on uh, players' games in general and uh, what he's been teaching uh, to his students as well. I think there, there there was actually a camp that Pete has been helping out with in uh, Australia called Tennis Ventures, and so um, we talk about you know what he's working on with his students. But nevertheless, I hope you really enjoy this interview and uh, fun chat with Pete from Australia, him being on Australia, in Australia, and me being in the US and A, <laughs> actually in Orlando. And uh, before we begin, uh, I just want to mention, I actually was on the road during this podcast, and so I recorded my side 
from outside the place where I was staying at. And so I apologize in advance if you hear a bit of background noise, but hopefully the audio comes through strong enough for you. So, all right. And with that, I hope you really enjoy my interview with Peter Freeman from the Australian Open. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files podcast. I have perhaps one of my most favorite people in the tennis world on the podcast once again. His name is Peter Freeman from Crunch Time Coaching. It's always a pleasure to have him on the show. And in particular, it is really cool to be talking to him from Australia. And, and that being he's in Australia, I'm still in the U.S. So uh, welcome uh, and good day, mate, uh, to you, Peter. How are you? I'm great. This is a, a dream come true. Ever since I've been a kid, I've been looking at the Australian Open and wanted to come over here. And I finally had an opportunity with a company called Tennis Ventures, which takes passionate tennis players who not only want to watch the matches, they also want to play uh, when they come. Because, you know, you, you watch those matches, you want to go out there and play. So we've been doing a lot of cool things. Uh, we got to actually practice on the same courts that, that the Australian Open, you know, pros are practicing on. And, and we actually also went to Kuyong and, and played where they used to have the Australian Open. So a lot of history here. And uh, it's just an awesome event. Yeah, that's really awesome, uh, Pete. And yeah, that, that reminds me, you know, I uh, a couple of times had the opportunity to go play tennis at Indian Wells as part of like the USCA leagues. They had tri-level uh, a tournament there at the same time as Indian Wells. And it's just, uh, you know, when you go there and uh, to a tournament, it just really gets you revved up. And that's why I encourage a lot of people to bring their kids to these tournaments because it really motivates you to to play a lot. And, and that's cool that with Tennis Ventures, you get to play uh, or, or the people who are involved get to play over there. So I want to ask you first off, you know, what are some uh, maybe one or two uh, observations that you've had at the Australian Open that you haven't had or seen at any other tournament that's unique to that area? I'm really happy you asked me that question because one thing, as somebody who loves tennis, um, you just feel so good here because the whole city is involved in this tournament. You know, So tennis feels cool here. Tennis feels important here. Uh, it's, it's a big city, uh, and you know, you'll be on the street by the harbor, and, and you'll see a big screen TV out by a bar, and they're all watching the Australian Open. When you're at the Australian Open, the place is absolutely packed, wall-to-wall -wall people, uh, and, and they just love tennis. People from all over the world are here. Uh, so it, it just there's such a buzz about it. And then there's so much history, because when you are walking the ground, you'll see statues of Laver and 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 statues of Newcomb. So they they honor all their their Aussie legends as you're walking all over the grounds. And and then another cool thing is when you're inside Melbourne Arena, even though the place is packed, it feels like a backyard barbecue. Like when when Barty was playing, they had like all these songs that they made up about Barty. Like like one you remember that uh, Hey Barbie, let's go party. They were singing Hey Barty, let's oh, go amazing. party, and they almost like around the whole entire uh, facility, they're kind of finishing each other's sentences and jokes. It's really, really interesting. Wow, that's really cool. Um, Pete, I got to ask you right off the bat, it just came to mind. Everybody talks about how when Federer is playing his matches, like it's overwhelmingly uh, pro Federer, of course. I mean, he's really he's built that up, you know, through his uh, amazing accomplishments. But did you get a sense that even when he played like 
Millman, for example, or, or other players that it's really like super heavily Federer no matter who he's playing? Well, everybody loves Federer. Uh, I, I, I was not there at that match, mm-hmm. um, but what I heard, I asked people about, they said it was pretty much 50-50, right? And so this guy, okay. Millman, who's trying to get the win of his life, he's playing in front of his hometown, and, 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 and Australia is very loyal, too. So, I mean, to make that 50-50 is incredible. Uh, and, and then I got to see... Uh, an Australian friend that I have, Paul, who came out to one of my clinics over the United States, and I asked him, who are you rooting for? And he goes, oh, Fed. <laughs> so wow. everybody loves Federer. Wow, that's pretty sick. And while we're on the topic of Federer, I mean, what are some observations that you have found? You know, because obviously we want to get um, your insights, your great coach. And so what are the observations that you've you've made of Federer that that he's been employing during the tournament that may maybe be either be interesting or translate or both to the to the uh, audience. Well, when you watch Federer play, and it is even you watch Federer play on TV, and you can see he's an artist. You can see it's it's beautiful. You can see no one plays like him. But when you see him play live, and I was able to be like in the fourth row, I had incredible seats. Mm-hmm. You really realize no one plays like Federer, and so. It's just beautiful. It's different. It's unique, authentic. Everything you know, you just can't come up with enough adjectives to explain how he plays. And and it's just something when you see it, you know you're seeing something special. And so that's the thing that I kind of feel bad for even people like Djokovic. Uh, not so much Nadal because you know Nadal's definitely got. I would say it's like Federer first, then Nadal, then Djokovic is a different, a distance third as far as people's favorite. Um. But whether Federer is the greatest of all time or not, everybody wants him to be the greatest, and they want him to be the greatest because no one plays like him. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I personally think Djokovic is the best of all time, especially after watching him last night. But my favorite player to watch ever is Federer because no one plays like Federer. Yes, Pete. And so I think you probably anticipate the next question I'm going to ask you, which is kind of maybe to dive uh, a little deeper into those, you know, those aspects of his game that are just so different that nobody else is playing like him. Uh, well, what are some of those things? Well, even even as he gets older, you marvel more at the movement because I remember when I was, uh, you know, watching Connors play. And one of the things that Connors used to do uh, and, and it was pretty unique at, as far as what he was able to achieve in his 30s and into his late 30s. But you knew you were rooting for the old guy. Uh, you would see Connor's labor in his movement. You would, you would see him play to the crowd and buy time. When you're watching Federer play and move, you just literally get the feeling like this guy could play another, another 15 years. He still is moving incredibly fast. He's hitting. He's hitting. The, he's he's very aggressive, and his skill of shot that he is hitting is he he just takes more risks than everybody. And and one thing I've noticed through the years uh, is I, I've been able to see him play in Miami like like ten years ago, and watch him play now. He's moving just as good. Like when you watch him move live, when you watch these pros move live, it's incredible, and his footwork still looks flawless. In fact. When you watch him play on TV, it looks effortless. When you watch him play live, it still looks effortless, but you can see that man is working his feet. You know, you can see it is footwork. He he is making it glide, but he's working out there. 
and he's very aggressive and he's taking on such risks or risk now by design. So for example, most people, when they serve, they're going to serve and try and get back behind the baseline and get into a rally. Better is now deciding on so many points that he's going to serve. He's going to stand inside of the court, pretty much in no man's land and play the percentages. And think my serve so good. Anything in front of me, I can just scoop off off the ground. If it's a little short, I'm on the guy so fast. And the person can put it to any corner deep. I'm just going to let it go for a winner or just stab at it. And maybe I'll get it back. But I'm going to control the court. And so he is always moving forward, playing so much of his match literally in no man's land to just take such time away from you. And so when, you, when you're playing like that and the shots, the improvisational shots he's able to hit over and over again, you're just marveling at it going, how is this guy doing this? This is just crazy to play tennis this way. Yeah, great stuff, Pete. And so I have two questions come to mind. Hopefully I can remember them. Maybe I'll restate them now like briefly. But I've got one on the footwork and then another on being aggressive like Federer. Okay, so the first one is on the footwork. How is he able, like what, what is it about his footwork that is is different, you know, than the other players? I mean, is it just the, his technique of like how he's moving his feet or is it his athleticism or or something else? Well, what's interesting is when you see him move and you just like there were so many points where I'm just watching him. I'm not watching where the ball's going. I'm just looking at him and you just see that he's just moving so fast and and he's you know, his his split step timing is perfect and he's got a really wide base. Like watch mm. him split step. And the other thing is is it's quiet. It's so quiet. He's so light on his feet. It's amazing. Like when you watch Djokovic play, it's it, the footwork is also blowing your mind, and, and I'm not saying it's not smooth, but it's very squeaky. Mm-hmm. Like Djok- Djokovic is squeaking, and he's stopping on a dime, and he's sliding on the hard court almost like he's playing on clay. Better doesn't go into slides. He, his feet are just kind of like Steffi Graf-like, you know, lots of, of, of s- small steps. But then he'll also do the big lunge like Djokovic. But it's just so quiet and fast, and he's – always looking to move around and dominate with the forehand. And he just does it so quickly. Now I can really see, you see it on TV, but I've heard so many people who play him say, he just takes all your time away. It is so uncomfortable. And you can see that. Mm-hmm. Great stuff. One thing that you mentioned about the uh, his wide base, I think that's really important because I think, you know, I've heard a, f- a few times, like it, to Mark Kovacs come to mind, comes to mind, like the wider of a base you're more comfortable with. I mean, that translates to like a better athlete and, uh, you know, you're, you're more stable on the court and things like that. You can take bigger steps being, you know, and, and be more comfortable and balanced. And so that that's a kind of a cool thing that you mentioned there. So the other question, Pete, is about being aggressive like Federer, where he's essentially like he's picking up like, you know, these shots at, at the baseline, you know, easily he has great hands. Like I was wondering, Pete, like what level of a player or maybe what characteristics do you think somebody would need in order to play aggressive like that? Because I think there's some players who they might, you know, listen to this and then it's obviously a fantastic experiment, but maybe they they try to like stay up there and then they have a lot of issues like playing the same game as Federer. Obviously, maybe their serve isn't as good or something like that. So like what kind of level do you think can play as aggressively as, as he is or at least to like a comparable degree? Yeah, that's very interesting. When you're talking about strategy wise, I think like if you were to just look at him play and you're just going into traditional coaching, 
Now, of course, the idea of taking the ball early and, you know, uh, basic yeah. coaching tips, that's still good. That still works. But as far as the way he's doing it, if you are working with a student, you'd be like, you're, you're playing dumb. You're playing stupid. You shouldn't be doing that. That's too high risk. The degree of difficulty is too much. And so only he can really get away with that. And that's the thing that is so tough because when you watch Federer play, technically he's so beautiful and he's so perfect and he's very traditional. It's like he's got this blend of traditional strokes and yeah. modern strokes. And so you want to look and play like him. And, and and so you're trying to mimic him and it's it's almost like falling into a bear trap because you really can't do it the way he does it. It's 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 yeah. just not good advice. Where when you watch someone like a Nadal, even though his strokes uh, are are a bit unorthodox, right? And he's got that buggy whip forehand, but when you're looking at the way he's tra- changing his court positions, even though, again, he is also, I don't want to take away from his athleticism, he is a freak athlete, but it's more manageable to tell a student at any level, like, hey, when you need more time, back off the baseline. Hey, when you see an opportunity, get inside the court. You know, it, it's it's more, it can translate more to more players the way Nadal is playing versus the way uh, Federer is playing. And I think a lot of people would almost think, well, you can't play like Nadal because he's got these unorthodox strokes and he's just so athletic where I think actually more people could probably play like Nadal, you know, hit the ball high over the net, uh, back up when you need time, get in whenever you see an opportunity. You know, with Federer, he's literally taking on so much risk right now that it's just not very doable for most people. I certainly couldn't even dream of playing the way he plays, but we all dream of wanting to play like him. (laughs) Yeah, I I know I do, although I'm – Realistic, and I think you know more like Nadal. Where, like you said, it's it's easier adaptations, and yeah, it just seems like sometimes he's just, you know, maybe it's not true, but he's got like a continental, and he's just picking it up with ease and just scooping it up from the baseline. It's so sick. But what are some other observations that? Because I know you're obviously on the grounds and you're checking out other matches. Like maybe some other pros that you've watched that you've seen certain things that you think would be really cool and, and translatable for us to to kind of put into our game. Well, I mean, the thing that you're seeing, uh, another thing that I was really noticing, just marveling at and respecting is that I just I just admire the work that everybody is putting into their game. It, it truly is an art form. It truly is a craft. Everybody that is there playing on those courts has put in countless hours working on their game, and it shows, even from the junior tennis players. The thing that I think is tough is when you go watch these players play, they're hitting the ball so much harder and so much lower over the net and so much closer to the lines, especially when you see it live, that it gets hard to tell people that that's the way you should play because the timing is just so much more impressive than it's ever been. I mean, I think whenever you've gone to a professional tournament, I'm 47 now, I'm always blown away by the talent, but but the bar just seems, seems to be rising more and more and more and to just kind of st- take a step back and say, okay, unless I've got 25 hours a week to play on a tennis court, I can't necessarily try and copy all of it. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And Pete, I'm curious too about like, I don't know how much you've seen of the players in their, either their 
pre uh, met or like afterwards like routine but i'm curious about like some of maybe some other activities you've been seeing them do like any sort of exercises or, or warm-ups that you can kind of like you know let us know about well it's a combination you know you have to realize the stress that's going on you know if, if you don't win uh you don't you don't make more money you know and, and everybody wants yeah. to keep winning making more money so you can tell that the coaches are doing a great job of keeping it structured, keeping it systematic, but also keeping it light. Uh, for example, I'm rooming here with a guy named Steve Contardi who owns a club called the Club at Harpers Point which in Cincinnati, which is one of the best clubs ever, by the way. And Steve Contardi is one of the most interesting men in the world. And 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 Katie Contardi, who is Coco Goff's uh, – no, Katie, I'm sorry, Katie McNally, who is – Coco yeah. Goff's partner, doubles partner, and she beat Stam Stozer, by the way, in the first round herself at the Australian Open this year. Took Serena Williams to three sets at the U.S. Open. She's only just turned 18, so look out for her, too. Uh, we got to go watch her practice, and she the way she started off is she was just throwing the football around, and then she was throwing the football around with Steve, and we were all laughing and smiling. And then she went out with Coco, and they were just hitting, and it was light, and they were smiling. And then all of a sudden, you can see that all the pros almost have a light switch to where all of a sudden they go from smiling to like, okay, lock in, focus. And then the coach gets a little more focused and works on some things. And then they go back to being light and smiling on, on um, when they're taking their water breaks. So it's this yeah. balancing act of keeping it light, let's have a good time, to when you go hit the court, you got to be locked in. Yeah. And that's a great point. I think that's like even more obviously very important for them, but even more important for us, as you said at the near the top of the show that, um, you know, we don't have the 24 hours or whatever it is per week to um, or more to, to practice. So we need to lock in uh, when we're practicing and be very intense about what we're doing. Also, uh, you, you mentioned uh, before we talked, uh, you know, started recording about experience watching uh, and talking to, I think it was uh, Katie's uh, parents, right? Is that correct? We actually, so so Katie is here with our coach, Kevin O'Neill, who uh, has been on our, our tennis con uh, uh, event that we do, like you do the tennis summit. Right. And uh, so he is here with her and uh, Coco Goff's parents are here. And so I got to sit in the player's box right next to Coco Goff's parents I was lucky enough to even talk to them a little bit and, and give some high fives. And one thing that's interesting, especially because, you know, everybody's got to keep in mind, Coco is still 15. Okay. It's crazy. She's crazy. still 15. And so you can see for them, as, uh, since she's not a seasoned veteran and they're also parents, that for them, it's very important. They know their daughter. It's very important to keep her emotionally positive. Uh, uh, trying to, because when we go out and play tennis, we lots of times can just beat ourselves up. Everybody's been there to where yeah. if, if somebody asked you at one moment, what are you saying to yourself? You wouldn't want to repeat it to, to the person because it's just so dark and negative. Yes. And so you can see that they're always trying to catch her from going negative and not that Coco does go negative. I mean, every once in a while you see her kind of look to her parents like, I'm frustrated. But no matter what the score is, where they won a point, where they lost a point, where they hit a winner, whether, you know, it, it's just always about, come on, good vibes, think positive, one point at a time. And it's this constant reminding uh, 
her and Katie of that. So they're always chattering uh, out of the box about staying positive because they know that the one thing that they don't want to happen, they don't mind a missed backhand down the line. The one thing that they don't want to happen to their daughter is that she gets negative and starts to lose energy and could possibly, you know, not trying to. But when you go that way, you can start, for lack of a better word, tanking or not trying as hard because you're just so disappointed. Not that you're not trying, but you get disappointed in yourself and then your energy goes down and your energy has to be up all the time at this level. Great stuff. Uh, again, Pete, as usual. Yeah, I, my interview um, from the previous episode was with Zoran Stojkovic from Kizo Performance, and he talked about what you talked about, which is constantly surrounding yourself with positive messages, positive vibes, and, and that really does go a long way. And I know some players think like, oh, you know, this is like not cool or, or woo-woo or whatever, but it really makes a huge difference. Also, you know, you talked about how the amazing traits of Federer and Djokovic and Nadal and you did have a really cool experience I believe and I think it was courtesy of uh, Tennis Ventures but you uh, sat with with uh, Sam Query right and and he gave you some uh, some advice and some some outlook uh, his outlook on uh, why some of the great players are, are way better than the others when you th- when you see how like everybody looks great you know but then how is it that the greatest players in the world are better than them so can you talk to us about that yeah, so it was really cool. Sam Quarry came in and joined us for dinner. He sat, first of all, a super nice, humble guy, you know, mm-hmm. very unassuming, just really cool. And what a lot of people don't realize, because, you know, you you always look at Federer and Djokovic and Nadal and, and you think about what freakish athletes they are, what a great accomplishment it is for Sam Quarry to play on the tour now i think a good 12 13 years this is an amazing accomplishment this is not normal what he's been able to do and i want people to understand that it's a an amazing accomplishment that not many people can do and i asked him when you go to these tournaments and and you see everybody practice there's even people you have no idea who they are and you watch them hit and when you're up close and watching you're going how can you hit a ball better than that? It's absolute perfection. It's technically perfect. The ball is going a million miles an hour. It's going in every time. And you're thinking, why isn't this person number one in the world? You know, what's the difference? And so I asked Sam that, and he said, that's a really good question. He said, for example, you can even see me hit, you know, up the middle with a 16-year-old, and you wouldn't really be able to know the difference between me and this 16-year-old junior. But when the game opens up, then things change. So movement is certainly a big thing. But what he really equated it down to is two things. He says, better Djokovic, uh, Nadal, they do everything just a little better than everybody else. Mm. And he says, when you do everything just a little better than everybody else, it starts to make a big difference in the results. And he also says that since they've done it over and over again and they've proven to themselves over and over again that they are special, that they are different, they have a different belief system than everybody else. So in those crucial moments, they're a little better than everybody and they believe and know that they're going to prevail why the other person is kind of thinking, can I really do this? 
Can I really beat this person? And we saw it. Perfect example was yesterday against uh, Tennis Sangren, where, you know, had Federer dead to rights, and Federer literally thought he was about to go home, and he said he's going to go home skiing or whatever, and he wasn't feeling 100% physically. He had a groin injury, and all Federer told himself was, I'm just going to try and hang around, make him play balls, and see what happens, and, you know, if he knocks me off and beats me, I'm going to shake his hand and congratulate him. And just that thought. Now, of course, Federer, you know, he he simplifies it, but Federer was also coming up with some pretty special stuff. But on the other side of the court was with was tennis battling with himself mentally, going, "Can I get this done?" And in the end, he was just a little short. Yeah, I mean, great recap of the tennis Sanger versus uh, Roger Federer match. Um, you know, the previous day from recording this, but. Uh, yeah, it's it's really funny because I, I had uh, a nice little lunch with my parents uh, down here in Orlando and uh, it was only a couple hours ago and we were talking about the match and I said essentially the same thing. I said when you have a combination of a guy in Federer who knows he's supposed to win and has that belief system like you talk about versus a guy who has doubts about whether he can close it out, then that's that's pretty tough to overcome. And uh, yeah, just amazing that, that Federer was able to recover like that and um were you at the match as well uh for that one uh, i was not at that that one okay. i got to see Federer play fuka fukovich or how do you say that yeah don't, no cursing pete no i'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding i don't know fukovich or something like that yeah and, and and again that's a prime example we can't pronounce his name he's been on the tour for a number of years and he is incredibly good yeah <laughs> you know and and the poor guy who took the first set off Federer uh, when when the crowd was going, come on, Federer, come on, Federer. And then one of these Aussies who they have a, such a fun, funny personality, the other guy, that was one Aussie goes, come on, other guy. Oh, my God. I didn't expect that. I thought he, you know, he was going to say like a curse word. But... No, he said, come on, other guy. You know, so – Oh my this goes to show what they're up against when they're out there against a Federer, Nadal, or Djokovic. Yeah, for sure. Um, and how do you? How does somebody combat? Actually, okay, I'll go with this question for you at first. Okay, how does somebody combat like when they're up against somebody like a Federer who has that belief system? Like, what types of strategies or other you know advice do you have? Uh, or maybe that Sam had on on how to to counter like the already the disadvantage that you're with against like a player who you know is better than you and to try to avoid losing the match before you even step on the court. Well, I think that's been the challenge that the whole tour is trying to figure out is is uh, you know Djokovic for the longest time and and let's say Djokovic just just picked this one thing up faster than he did like. I think with Djokovic, it was a combination of, and they probably go hand in hand, of he, in the beginning, was having a tough time physically when it got hot and things like that. And so he knew he had this vulnerable yeah. Achilles heel that uh, was keeping him back. And then he discovered he was, what he needed, a gluten diet, and then that kind of changed everything. And so once he felt better on the court, then all of a sudden he believed he could beat those guys. Let's say he figured that out three or four years Earlier, I mean, how many years was he third fiddle where we're going, when's Djokovic going to step up? When's Djokovic going to step up? If he would have figured just that out three or four years yeah. earlier, he probably would have more grand slams than Federer and Nadal, right? So if you ask Djokovic, 
especially when he started to finally win, how are you doing this? And he goes, I finally believed I could. And so I think it comes down to finding something that you feel is like your superpower. For Djokovic, I think his superpower became, I found the right diet and fitness regime to where now I feel like when it gets in the heat of battle, I'm fine. I'm not worried about it. Uh, Tennis Sangren, who lost, now he lost, but this was his best result ever. And Curry was saying he worked so hard on his fitness. And he said, when you work so hard on your fitness, your mental toughness goes up because you know you can go the distance. Yes. And so that's what it comes down to is uh, if, if these players are going to step up and we've yet to see it because this year, we thought last year how the, the next gen was finally getting some results. We thought this is the year they're going to break through. Well, it hasn't happened yet in our first uh, Grand Slam. And so how are they going to do it? It's going to be something that they do, whether it's a, a fitness routine, whether it's something they eat, whether it's a, a new stroke they've been working on. It's something that they feel that they have the uh, unfair advantage over the rest of their competition that pushes them over the edge. Excellent observations, Pete. So my second question, when I I guess I hinted at it uh, before I asked this other one, um, the hierarchy of doing everything a little bit better. I was wondering if maybe, and this is a classic question, you you probably get all these students who come to you and say, what should I work on first? So I'm curious about like what if you if you like we're talking to a student and uh, you know what what would you say are the first couple things that they need to work on to see the biggest ROI return on investment? That's a great question. I think that really comes down to level. You know, like if you are a entering league play as an adult yeah. and you're between three zero and three five and you want to win. Yeah. It comes down to uh, not taking risks, to play the percentages, to hit the ball higher over the net, to keep more balls in play. And I, I don't even think at that point serve is that important. You know, if you have good hand-eye coordination and you keep your stroke simple and you can learn how to, when the ball comes fast, you can somehow figure out a way, and I don't care what your technique is, to diffuse the pace and get it back. You know, just get a steady rally ball, and, and no matter what anybody hits at you, if you can get the ball back, you're like never going to lose, okay? If, if, but then if you get to like a 3-5 and all of a sudden you want to get to a 4-0 and beyond, now all of a sudden you're going to have to add technical skills. And especially if you are a male, it, it also I think it, it differs between a male and, and, a, and a female player because I've seen yeah. – female players who have unbelievable ground strokes and some pretty good volleys and not a great serve, they can go out there and dominate and play 4-0, 4-5, and 5-0 tennis. But if you're a male and you're trying to get to four, be able to play with solid 4-0s and 4-5s and you haven't developed a continental grip on, on your serve and, and can hit all the spins comfortably, if you can't uh, have a mastery of spin – and be able to swing through a ball and make it naturally decelerate, you're not going to win. So it's like if you want to get better and play at 4-0, level, then you have to become better technically. If you want to win 3-5 and below, you have to be the one who is patient and doesn't miss and can, and can handle any kind of pace. Like when you see someone lose at 3-5, they're either going to say, 
I hate playing pushers or they hit the ball too hard for me. So if you can, if you can be a three or a three, five, and you just want to win at that level, you've got to be able to handle pace and get the ball back in play. And you got to also be able to not let somebody who has no pace and gives you nothing. You can't let them drive you crazy. If you can do those two things, you're going to win a ton at the three, five and below level. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Excellent stuff. So figure out what level you want to be at and then what you need to do to to get there. So, Pete, like, we kind of talked about this, uh, a little bit about the men's game and some about the women's, I think mostly the men's so far, but how do you compare, you know, strategically the women's game versus the men's game at the Aussie Open and, and in pro tennis in general? And then, I mean, you could also talk about the, the amateur level too. Well, as far as at the Australian Open, one thing that is just amazing and I really love is that whether you're watching a men's match or a women's match, you're just in awe of the skill and the athleticism. And the men obviously hit the ball a little harder, but especially when you're watching it live, those women pound the ball. <laughs> you know, it, 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 And I think a lot of uh, people don't give the women enough credit for how hard they're hitting that ball. You know, and they tend to also one thing in general with both players, uh, men and women, is to me the ball is going lower and faster than I've ever seen, and in more hmm. than I've ever seen. Um, and the women almost are doing it to where it's actually the skill might even be a little harder because they're doing most of it on a line drive with very little spin. A lot of these women, where the men tend to have a little more shape to their shot. It looks like the ball's rotating more uh, through the air on the men's side than the women's side. So you could argue what's harder to do. I mean, to me, I think as far as if I'm going to hit a shot, I feel safer when I'm spinning it in. These women are like, uh, <laughs> I saw Allison Risk play um, Barty. And I mean, she's hitting everything like, like her racket's almost coming through the ball flat. And it's like almost no spin. And everything's like a rocket on the baseline. Wow. Yeah, you really need <laughs> a lot of confidence for that. And her, Allison's, uh, I think her handle or nickname on social media is risk for reward. So, I mean, she's yeah, definitely yeah. taking risks there. So, Pete, I was wondering about just, you know, the, what you've been working on with the campers there. So maybe some, some common observations with the campers and uh, what you found and how you've been trying to solve the, those issues. Yeah. So again, uh, for those that don't know, I'm an online tennis coach and I do lots of camps myself uh, and, and I'm helping tennis ventures here with their campers. And so the players are those passionate players. They absolutely love tennis. I like to call them totally obsessed tennis players. So they certainly are here. Lots of times we'll leave at like six in the morning. The bus is full, you know, and it's optional. It could be like you can sh- you can show up and play or you can sleep in. No, they're all, the bus is full every day. <laughs> and so they love tennis. And what I'm seeing are the things that are holding them back as far as to get to the next level because everybody always wants to get to the next level. 
is number one, it's like the, the protocol of how you should look at your mistakes. When people miss a ball, they always look to the racket first. And, and they always are like doing practice swings. Where most of the time, that's not why you missed. Yep. To me, a simple way, if you want to get better, the first thing you want to look at is your court position and strategy. Because lots of times the shot you just missed that you're thinking is why you lost the point, it's because of the shot you played before or the shot your partner played before. So the checkoff system is this for me. Look at your strategy and look at your court position. Lots of times you also miss the ball because you hit a return to serve in no man's land, which is the right place to stand because your opponents don't have a strong enough serve to where you should be behind the baseline. But you hit your return and then you just stayed there. So you check off your shot selection and your court position and ask, was that okay? If it's okay, then the next thing you ask yourself is, how is my footwork? Am I, am I on my toes? Am I split stepping? If that's okay, then you can look to your racket and ask yourself, what's the technique? And almost everybody does that in reverse order. Yes, excellent. Yeah, it, it just came to mind. I was hitting uh, a couple of days ago in Orlando, uh, actually at the tennis center. And um, it was at, at the racket and paddle show, which was really fun, by the way. And, uh, you know, this person missed and they immediately like look at their racket, you know, <laughs> it's, but uh, it's, it's clearly, you know, a lot of other things. I think in this case, a person's uh, sh- shot selection really was the case. Uh, as far as like technical issues, uh, what are some things that like just were blaringly obvious that uh, that people have made mistakes uh, in the technical realm? Yeah. So, I mean, this is also... Uh... It's tough because now I'm 47 years old. You don't look it, man. <laughs> I, well, thank you. And I'm I'm understanding more. You know, when when I was younger, uh, 20s, 30s, coach, uh, footwork, move your feet. Blah, blah, blah. You know, as you get older, even if you're in good shape, <laughs> you gotta you gotta make decisions. You know, you got you gotta make compromises uh, physically. Now, if you're in good enough shape. If you want a big advantage, if you're like 60 and you're like, well, you ain't talking to me, Pete. I'm in great shape. I got a low body percentage. I eat healthy. There's no aches and pains. You better be moving those damn feet. You better be split stepping because if you can do it, if you're blessed enough to do it, be grateful and use it because most of the people you're going to play against have got to make a decision because they've either got knee pain, they've got shoulder pain, they've got some kind of something going on that they can't split step every time. They can't move their feet like a junior. You know, they, they want to, <laughs> but they also want to be able to wake up the next morning and, and, and play again or, or go to work or take care of their family. And, and, and so uh, the obvious things of saying, well, just you, everybody should be moving their feet. Well, yes, it's a, it's a glaring thing that most people are not doing. So you have to make up your mind as you're listening to this going, can you be one of the rare people who can actually do all the right things? And if you can, you better work on it because you're going to have a huge advantage over the people you're playing against because a lot of people just simply can't do it, okay? I, I'm almost coming to a decision now where I'm probably just going to teach. and I'm not, I, I just got back into playing a lot of tennis, and I'm almost deciding, you know, because I love teaching more than anything, maybe I just work on my body and teaching and not worry about, you know, playing. So everybody's got to make their decisions. And then the other thing is, is if you don't move your feet, then don't move your hands either. 
And what I mean by that is the real killer is people are slow out there. They're not moving their feet. And then when they see a volley at the net, they swing at it. And so yeah. if you're going to have quiet feet, you got to have quiet hands too. And if you have active feet, you got to have quiet hands. So no matter what, whether you can move or you can't move, if you have the ball near you and you can put your strings on it, be very aware of your hands and keep them still. Because the real killer, especially the ultimate killer in tennis, is people who can't move their feet. And then the ball comes to them and they do that. They swing really fast. And they can't control the ball like that. That's right, Pete. So kind of uh, on the, the, along the same lines of your, we're talking about volleying here, uh, you mentioned you've, I think you mentioned you've been to some doubles matches. Uh, what are some like fundamentals that you've seen in, in those matches where uh, it, it's something that is kind of missing in the, the amateur game uh, uh, for the most part? Well, energy, number one. Mm. Uh, you know, you, you really hear maybe even more than in a singles match, the box chattering at the team. The team coming together and constantly connecting and giving little fist bumps. They're very good at coming together after every point, not saying up, up, up a coffee shop and having long conversations Right. I think people mishear that. You know, you got to communicate. And then so they feel guilty and then they have this long conversation between every point. It's quick, but it's very connecting. And they set simple strategies. That's number one that you can do. And a lot of these, of course, there's a lot of pros who they um, have their teammate. But there's a ton of pros every time to whether they lose the singles early or whatever. They connect and play with people they've never played with. That's that's very normal. So you can't use the excuse of, well, I can't communicate with my partner because I don't know who I'm going to play with. All the pros have good communication skills because they've just packaged that skill. So no matter who they play with, they're going to do that. The other thing is, is they don't worry about the alley so much and they dominate the middle. The middle is whoever can dominate the middle. One thing that's kind of interesting is when I watch Coco and, and Katie play doubles, they played this this team to one of the girls, and I wish I knew her name, uh, so I apologize that I don't, because she deserves a tremendous respect. She, If she was five foot, I'd be impressed. I, I think she might have been four foot something, or if she was five foot, it was like five foot one or two. She dominated the net. She poached more than anybody. She po poached more and made more than anybody. So the excuse that, you know, you need to be a big person to dominate the net. And you have an on. I mean, she dominated the net. Uh, so you want to be active. You want to take risks. The pros are not afraid to get passed down the line. They know it's a percentage thing to where a match I was watching today, I told this one lady, I'm talking about a, a, a recreational player. She would get herself in position. The serve would go in. As soon as she hit the ball off, the, as soon as she heard the ball off her partner's strings who were serving the ball in, she would back up. And shuffle to the alley. And I told her afterwards that that's oh. what she was doing. And she had no idea she was doing that. Wow. That's why you got to record yourself, man. I, I tell a lot of people, I'm sure you do too, just putting out, it doesn't cost much. Just you know, even your cell phone, have somebody record it or use a tripod and or hang it up. They have some tools that you can hang up on top of the, the fence there. And you'll see a lot of things that you're not doing or obviously get a great coach like, like Pete um, and the individuals associated with uh, with Tennis Ventures to check out what you're doing. Um, 
Also, you know, you talk about how we can really communicate with any doubles partner, even a new individual, and not have that be some sort of excuse. Um, what are some questions that we might want to ask a new partner so that we can kind of get a sense about their game and and get a better uh, rapport with them as well so that we can have a good match? Well, that's a great question. I might have answered this on another podcast. So if you've heard me say this before, I apologize. But my favorite, one of my favorite memories was I was at Tennis Fantasies in New Brentfels, Texas with the Legends. And Steve Cattardi's actually been running and owning that for 30 plus years. And so I played one year and the, the, the show court was, I guess, the top court. And, and that year I was one of the better players. So I got to play with Mark Woodford against another college coach. And, and that college coach played with Rick Leach. So we're playing with literally wow. two of the best doubles players of all time. The, the Bryan brothers just retired, uh, well, not retired, but played their last Australian Open. And they talked, you know, who inspired them? Rick Leach was one of the names that came up and Mark Woodford. <laughs> okay. So, and, and so I was nervous. It was like I was excited to be playing with Mark Woodford, but I was also <laughs> dreading it because I, I knew that was the one court that people were going to be watching and I didn't want to embarrass myself and I certainly didn't want to let down Mark Woodford. And even though, you know, I, I knew logically he doesn't care if we win or lose, you know, he's just there for hits and giggles. But one of the things that was amazing and it just goes to show what a great communicator was, is he asked me right away what I like to do. Mm. How do I feel right now? Mm -hmm. And so he led by following. Where I think most people, especially when they hear communication, and I've seen it over and over again, when someone feels like they're a better player, they feel like they almost have to educate the lesser player. I think that's one of the biggest mistakes uh -huh. that who want to be leaders at recreational tennis make. They go, hey, you know, I know you know, they think they're being really nice and great. They think they're being super helpful. Like in their mind, they're probably thinking, hey, I know you don't know this, but you should be standing here at the net. You should be returning here. You should be hitting your shot there, okay? And they think that they're doing a great job. Well, what you're doing is each time you do that, you're you're making the person more and more aware that they don't know what the hell they're doing and making them feel more inferior and insecure about what they're doing, even though you think you're being super helpful and educating them on how to play tennis. What you're actually doing is you're you're handcuffing your team. They're 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 becoming afraid. They don't want to make a mistake. They're second guessing every move they make. Mark Whitford did none of that. He just kept asking me, "What do I want to do? What am I feeling? What feels good right now?" Over and over again. And then when he wanted me to do something, like one time he wanted me to return down the line, he goes, "Hey mate, why don't you have a go down the line? Have some fun with it." Nice. So then I thought, okay, he's saying take a risk. Go for it. And if I miss, no big deal. Well, I made the return. You know, uh, if, if, if he would have said, listen, man, we got to, you're hitting everything cross court. You got to go down the line here. Or, or, you know, they're just reading you like a book. A lot of pressure. Then I would have just freaking probably <laughs> folded and, you know, hit a terrible shot. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's, that's great. And so, I mean, along those lines, do you think it would be, I mean, it's really all about the language and how we use it. So, do you think it would be better to say something like, how do you feel about trying um, a lob, you know, on the second shot or like something like that where it's like you're kind of giving them like a choice type of thing rather than, than directing them? 
I wouldn't even go. I wouldn't even go okay. there. I wouldn't even give them choice A or B. I would. I would. I would ask them first of all what they like to okay. do. You know, and, and yeah. kind of an, another one of our online instructors, Will, yep. who has the doubles playbook. Yep. He basically says so. It's a great kind of combination: the Woodford strategy of asking what they like to do, and then the freelance strategy that Will talks about. Will's like, hey, if you know, if you know what players are likely to do as soon as you see the ball go yeah. there you know where to go and you know where to hit so if you ask for information on what they like to do so you kind of get an idea of where they're going to go then once you see it actually executed you know where you should go and what you should do with the ball is there any chance that you know you you ask the player your partner like what do you like to do and then they say oh i like to do x and then it's like something that is like definitely a losing strategy like if that's the case is that possible and then if that's the case like well what might you want to do that's a great question so they say they like to do that and then and then you know it's a losing strategy i think the key is to not freak out you know like what, let's say they yeah. say well I, want, I like to i like to rip my returns down the line you know no one likes to lose so i think in the beginning you go okay you know and you see how it goes and and then okay you know, maybe on a changeover, you can ask them, well, what, do, what do you think? Like that guy at the net, like he, he's really good, huh? Yeah. yeah that guy <laughs> is really good at the net. Man, we should probably, what do you think? You think we should try and avoid him for next couple of games? Oh, I think that's a good idea. You know, stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. No, I like it. That's great. That's great, Pete. That's great. Um, how has the event inspired you? I mean, what are some takeaways that you have that you might want to work on or that you might want to teach? Like just in general, like what, what, how are you feeling and, and what would you take away from it? Well, first of all, it's just inspiring. Yeah. Being here with Tennis Ventures, seeing how much people love tennis, going to the tournament, seeing what an international sport it is, how much of a buzz it is, and then seeing our athletes perform at the highest level. Yeah. It's super inspirational to me. It gives me a lot of pride in our sport. You know, and and everything that's happened leading up to this tournament, from the pros raising five million dollars to every time you see an ace that there's giving another donation to the to the fires, to the way all the pros came out and represented and respected uh, the the tragic death of Kobe Bryant. Yeah, Watching Roger Federer yesterday, who said, "I don't like to call the trainer because I think it's like you know a sign of weakness." to where he, I mean, just so many examples yeah. of strength and class makes me just thinking, man, there is just no better sport in the world than tennis. And then the other thing is, is one of the things that, 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 uh, Katie and Coco's coach and parents, one of the things they kept saying over and over again was keep working. Yeah. And I think we can all use that no matter what we're doing in life, you know, is, is no matter what the score was, just keep working. So no matter if you're up in life, you're down in life, you're even in life, you got to keep working. That's right. I mean, yeah, you mentioned a lot of uh, a lot of great things that happened, and also super sad things. Obviously, you know, Kobe Bryant and his daughter Gianna, and the other individuals who uh, perished. And yeah, a lot of great lessons from from you know what what you've seen at the Australia about resilience and support and love and. Um, a lot of great lessons from Kobe too, you know, just, just not worrying about failure. I, I remember I, I heard him talk about how when he was like 10 or 11, 
during the whole summer, he never scored a point yes. in that whole summer. And then his, his dad hugged him and said, you know, I, I love you no matter what, uh, even if you don't score any points. And that kind of gave him, you know, the confidence uh, to, to not worry about those sorts of things. And so anyway, a lot of observations there. I was wondering, too, uh, who were your favorite uh, players? Okay, let's say excluding Federer, you know, who, who were your favorite players to watch that that you that you actually watched, uh, you know, during the tournament. That's a great question. First of all, I love to watch Barty. <laughs> what she does with the ball, yeah, uh, beautiful hitter. Love, you, you know, it's 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 nice to see, and it's nice to see it working. You know, the slice backhand. It, it's it's a piece of art. But really, what I love is. There's so many things where I'm watch, walking around. I go, I have no idea who you are, but I can't believe how good you are. <laughs> yeah. So it's not one individual player. It's just the respect I have going, whether I'm walking by a junior court, I'm just amazed. Whether I'm walking by a, a doubles match that I don't even know who they are. You know, I, I watched Ram play, who's, who's I think now he's in the semifinals of the doubles. Sweet. And – Watching him play doubles is inspiring, and 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 looking at the carbon copy Pete Sampras serve that's dominating was amazing, and just seeing everybody just so damn good at what they do uh, is fun to watch. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. This is kind of a you know fun one that makes it's kind of thought provoking. I don't know if I've asked you this before, Pete, but let's say if you could post a message on a huge billboard that's going to be erected like right outside the entrance of uh, the Australian Open and you could write anything on it, what would you write on that billboard? We have the classiest, most talented athletes in the world. If you don't come in and watch, you're missing out. Mm. Love that. That's fantastic. Um, what are a couple books, Pete, that you really enjoy reading or, or have read that you think would be great for tennis players to read? And it doesn't have to be uh, any tennis books. I mean, it can be, obviously, but it doesn't have to. <laughs> That's a great question because I'm a dummy. I barely read. <laughs> no. You're a smart guy. <laughs> uh, Pete is also very humble uh, if you didn't, you know, get that. <laughs> um, yeah. So my... My favorite book uh, that is a tennis book is Open mm. by Andre Agassi. Yeah. And I think that that's an important book to read to where you realize what an inner battle we all have, you know, and, and how much is going on in everybody's head and that you have to always, you know, be fighting yourself and, and that you can't say enough positive things to yourself because – it's not like you can turn yourself into a robot. Those things are going to creep in. You know, even Djokovic last night, who is about as much of a robot and computer as you can get, uh, every once in a while he shows you all the stuff that's going on. You know, he gets fiery. There was one time where his serve hit the backstop and then it went up and then somebody caught it and it, it kind of distracted him and he kind of like looked at them like, what are you doing? You know, like, and, and so it just goes to show how on edge everybody is and that how much you've got to work all the time at, at keeping it together. Yeah. I was going to ask you, um, you know, like when Djokovic does something like that, do you think that's helpful or do you think that's something that he knows is not helpful and he's working on, or do you think it's actually helpful for him to do that to help him focus? I think in a lot of ways it's on un unavoidable 
you know, because none of us are perfect. Yeah. Um, and so Djokovic tries to be as perfect as he can be. And he's a competitor. You know, we, we all have our flaws. And when you're out there every day doing it in front of the world, like when he did that, the person behind this started to say bad things about him and why they didn't like him. Yeah. But the guy is playing at such a high level and he's, he's, he's already created such a big tennis history and he's trying to create the ultimate tennis history. They all want to finish with the most grand slams and they all know they have a limited window of opportunity to do it. And, and so, you know, I think that we all have to remember these are just people like you and me and think about all the mistakes you make during the day, you know, oh, yeah. you, 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 I mean, how many times during the day, if, if I'm alone, will I curse at myself? A lot, you know? I mean, yeah. so they're doing this in front of the world and, and they're trying to create history. And so I think for Djokovic, when you see him do something like that, rather than just be so hard on him and say, well, that's not very nice or classy, look at all the million classy things he's done. You know, he's, yeah. he's won a tournament when Serbia was going through a hard time and gave his complete prize money to them. He is at Arthur Ashe Kids Day in every single charity event before a tournament. He's there. I've seen him over and over again on practice courts where I see it on, on a YouTube video or whether I was there in person, how he treats the kids and stays longer and signs more autographs. I've seen the dude bring chocolates to the press. Hmm. So if you're looking for something negative, you're going to find it every time. But why not look for the positive in people? Yeah, thank you for saying that because it's it's really incredible how people they they see like one act and they just think that like that one act represents the person. You know, it's 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 you got to look at their entire career and and life and what they're doing. And I know in a lot of cases we don't know exactly what they're doing, but you know, listen to somebody like Pete who's seen more of those things of of what the players are doing, and it's very easy to be critical, you know, on a keyboard. But good stuff, Pete. Uh, any other observations that I may have, uh, you know, failed to ask you about that you think are really important or, or anything else? Any other thoughts? The last thing I'll say is if you are lucky enough to go to a tennis tournament, if you're impressed with a particular individual uh, for a couple of games, try not to do the back and, he back and forth head that we all see tennis, and just keep your <laughs> eye on the one player that impresses you and watch everything that they're doing from their uh, return of serve stance to their split step to their footwork to the, the rituals that they've developed in between points and realize that it's all done and worked on for a very important reason and that's to play at the highest level. Excellent advice, Pete. And also we were talking too about some of the great stuff you've been doing uh, so much really. And uh, one thing that you did mention, and I'm not sure if it's you know, the, the timeliness of it, but the seven day serve challenge, you want to talk about that a bit? Yeah. So one thing that I'm doing this year is I'm doing lots of challenges right now. We're in the middle of a seven day serve challenge. So I don't know if you're going to be able to see this, if you're watching this and participate. Um, uh, I don't know if you're gonna be able to participate in this, uh, cause it might be too late, but you know, always go to crunchtimecoaching.com and you're going to see throughout the year, we're going to probably bring the serve challenge back. I'm going to be doing an upgrade your forehand seven day challenge. I'm going to be doing backhand challenges. I'm going to be doing fitness challenges. And the idea of these challenges is that first of all, people love challenges. They love 
a reason to get motivated. And just like I said about Coco Goff's parents always trying to keep on message of positivity and staying up and, and being focused, that's what challenges are. They're like a new inspiration in your life. They're a reason to get focused. They're, they're a reason to, to, to take action. But if you were to also just look at these challenges like, like compared to a, a seven-day fitness challenge, well, the idea is you don't want to just get fit for seven days. <laughs> you, want, you want that to be the motivation that says, now I'm going to work out, right? But what you have to do after that seven days, you got to keep working. Like I said earlier, like, like Coco Goff's parents told her, you got to keep working. So these challenges are designed to get you going, but then they're made as a perfect template to where you can practice it and use it for the rest of your life. Exactly. That's, that's the goal behind it. Yeah, you can't just take a lesson and then that's it. You know, you got to keep working consistently. Pete, I mean, obviously everybody needs to check out crunchtimecoaching.com. Uh, what other uh, outlets or social media or anywhere else that you uh, that the audience can connect with you? Well, I love to put videos on on YouTube. So you can go to YouTube and, and just type in, you know, right, if you can't remember Crunch Time Coaching, type in Peter Freeman Tennis. And a lot of my videos will come up. We have over 8 million views now and, nice. and uh, closing on, I think, 36,000 subscribers. Nice. I'm finally getting pretty active on Instagram. Nice. So you can check out Crunch Time Coaching on Instagram and, and Facebook. But I would probably say where I, I do my, my best work in that, you know, Instagram has the one-minute videos. So if you like short form, go to Instagram. But if you want to dive deep into some, some concepts, there's many videos on YouTube that I have that are 15, 20, 30 minutes long. So you'll find everything there. Great stuff, Pete. Well, I know it's uh, probably, uh, you know, getting time for you to do some work or go to the tournament. So I want to thank you so much. Uh, it's always really fun to talk to you. You know, we talk a lot, at, uh, whether it's messaging on Facebook or texting or uh, phone calls and uh, consider you a, an excellent uh, coach and person as well. And so uh, really happy that you're down there in Australia enjoying yourself. You definitely deserve it. So uh, have a great time and looking forward to connecting with you soon. And, uh, you know, Summit's coming up. So we're obviously going to have you on there. And uh, yeah, so have a great time. And thanks a lot, Pete, for coming on. Yeah. Thank you so much, Maribon. And I just want to congratulate you on everything that you've done from starting your podcast, which is now on the Tennis Channel. I'm so proud of you. Uh, I, I, it's so interesting. I, I go to work, uh, which is, you know, I've got a lucky life. I go to work at a club and they always have the Tennis Channel on and they're always putting your face <laughs> with a podcast. So, you know, it's, it, it's, it's pretty neat that you started this idea just from passion and now you're, a, a, you know, on the Tennis Channel you're doing the summit, uh, which is a lot of work, but you're coming back again for another year. So it really goes to show all the dedication, passion, perseverance, and quality that you have. Because if there was no quality, if there was no value in what the people are getting, it wouldn't be on the tennis channel. You wouldn't keep doing it. Uh, so you know that's a great combination of value and a work ethic that you've developed that's getting recognized and rewarded. And, and so congratulations. Thanks a lot, Pete. And, you know, I, I could say a ton about you too. You're putting in the work every day consistently and uh, it's, it's really professional level stuff that you're doing and you have uh, a great audience, very passionate audience. And uh, I really encourage everybody to check your work out for sure. So, and we'll have links to everything we mentioned today on the show notes page. So thanks again, Pete. And I'll talk, uh, talk to you soon. All right. Take care, mate. Thanks, mate. All right, I really hope that you enjoyed my interview with Peter Freeman from Crunch Time Coaching. 
it was really fun to chat with him while he was in Australia. And once again, definitely check out all this stuff at crunchtimecoaching.com and on YouTube. And I will post all of the links that we mentioned in today's conversation, as usual, um, on the show notes page at tennisfiles.com slash 132. And I would really appreciate it if you would subscribe to the Tennis Files podcast. It would immediately download all of the episodes straight to your podcast app and device of choice as soon as they're published. And so that's definitely pretty convenient. And it would also help the show uh, into get into a, a higher place on the various podcast a- apps, which would in turn help people uh, see it more easily. So that's, you know, that's definitely good, I'd say. And uh, yeah, I'd appreciate it if you could subscribe. And also, I want to leave you with a quote, as I often do at the end of the show. And today's quote is from Kobe Bryant. And Kobe said, everything negative, pressure, challenges is all an opportunity for me to rise. And uh, I wasn't able to record anything uh, about Kobe uh, uh, last Wednesday, uh, which was a few days after uh, the you know really horrific event happened uh, where nine people, including him and his daughter Gianna perished and uh it's because I recorded the whole thing you know in advance but uh just you know really sad event I mean I think it touched many many tennis players in addition to everybody around the world and just you know somebody with such a great uh, impact overall especially you know inspiring people in terms of um his athletic uh achievements and his drive and um you know, I, I have watched quite a few videos of him uh, in speaking enge- engagements or interviews, and a lot of what he has said uh, really strikes a chord with me and many others, of course, in terms of, you know, what you need to do to, to really achieve great things in life. And so, again, you know, regardless of what other things might have happened uh, in his life, you know, he's definitely spread a lot of great messages and, and, uh, you know, inspired people to become great. And that's why his, his loss, you know, of course, is, uh, along with everybody who perished, uh, is really tough to take. Um, and I know that I was, uh, pretty down, uh, for quite a few days, just kind of thinking about the whole thing. And, you know, it's in the news constantly as well and all that. And, um, yeah, I think for me, it was just, uh, thinking about the positive, impact on that he had you know to to go like after his career and everything and uh, he did a great job in terms of his building his brand and entrepreneurship and also most importantly uh, teaching uh, many kids at his Mamba Academy including his his family you know how to how to play basketball and and other life aspects so uh, definitely uh, you know very unfortunate but at least it seems to be um, you know, positively impacting people in the sense that they're really thinking twice about the importance of family and uh, doing things that you love and and so forth. So anyways, uh, I really appreciate you listening to the podcast. And, you know, it's uh, again, just uh, with the time that we have left, we've got to really keep on pushing to uh, to get that you know, that top 10 ranking to, to get that higher NTRP rating and to achieve what we want to and, and to not let other things get in the way because you never know how much time you have left. So with that, thank you so much for your support as always. 
I've been, you know, receiving communications from you, and I'm really grateful for that. I actually want to highlight uh, Mary, and Mary sent me an email a couple of days ago, uh, and you know, it was quite a long email, and I was really touched by it, and basically. Uh, she mentioned that he, she had listened to every one of my podcasts over the last four months and uh, learned a lot of things about the podcast and even made a library of my podcast guests, which is really cool. And uh, she started to video her practices and matches and uh, lost 25 pounds. So a lot of amazing things. And I'm really glad to be able to positively impact people with the show and that's obviously why I'm doing it and every time I receive messages like this it makes me want to record a hundred more episodes so um, all the best to you all and keep improving every single day and you know even if you have an off day just get right back up and don't uh, have two off days in a row so all the best to you all thanks for all the support and I will see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files podcast. This is Mirabon signing out. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.